the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're always happy when we get to chat with you. And so is Alan Dempsey. He's our engineer, and he gets us on the air every weekend. Andrew Herdliska produces our show each weekend. We're grateful to both of them. Uh, Matthew Sorens joins me from Aurora, Illinois, in this first segment. U.S. Church Training Specialist for World Relief. Uh, We're going to talk about his book, Welcoming the Stranger, Compassion and Truth in the Immigration Debate. Matt, welcome. Nice to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tell me about the background of this book. Why is it important? Why should we be listening right now? Yeah, you know, I think the topic of immigration obviously is a is a very contentious political issue for a lot of people, and it's an issue affecting many of our communities, including there in central Florida. Um, we really wrote the book, my, my colleague Jenny Yang and I, because we thought that especially for those who are coming at this from a, the perspective of, of a Christian faith, so often this topic is, is a political issue or an economic issue, but not something that we've thought about as an issue driven by biblical values. So we really wanted to provide that lens to look at this complex topic that that affects most of our communities. You opened the book with a chapter called The Immigration Dilemma. Uh, Fill us in on that. Yeah, you know, I think, and this is actually the second edition of this book, and this was true when we wrote the first edition almost a decade ago now, but I think it's much more true now. Uh, This topic is, is a dilemma for a lot of people. On the one hand, we want to be kind to our neighbors. We want to love and welcome people. Um, That's especially true of those of us who are Christians. But we also want to obey the law. We want to respect the the governing authorities. And, uh, you know, we want to be safe. We want to ensure our own financial well-being as well. So I think that a lot of Americans and and a lot of people of faith in particular feel a tension there between how we respond. And sometimes what we get from, you know, television news is sort of screaming matches uh, from people on the fringes of either side of the debate. But we really believe that there's a, a lot of common ground when we get down into the details of how should we think about immigration? What are the facts? Because so often we skip over the facts to jump to our emotions. And then also, what does the Bible say that might inform how we think about this? So that's really our goal with the book, is to provide some scriptural grounding, provide some facts, and then tell some stories of people who are directly in the middle of this conversation who have immigrated to this country for a variety of reasons. And that leads to this topic, aliens among you, who are undocumented immigrants? Yeah, you know, so in that, that second chapter, we really just wanted to start the book by telling some stories, because um, it, it, it's easy to hear a bunch of statistics about immigration issues and not remember that each of these people is uh, an, a person made in the image of God, uh, from a Christian perspective, a neighbor whom we're called to love. So we took the opportunity, and, and I got to write most of that chapter, of, of really just telling the stories of a handful of immigrants. Um, one is a now a colleague of mine, uh, Liz, who immigrated to the United States from China as a small child, brought on a temporary visa, a work-based visa, when her mom got a job in the, in the Chicagoland area. And then their immigration attorney made some mistakes, and when Liz was, I think, 12 years old, she lost her legal status. Of course, didn't even really understand what that meant at the time, um, because 12-year-olds don't usually have a great grasp of U.S. immigration law. But she started to understand a few years later when she couldn't apply for a driver's license and couldn't get a summer job and couldn't join her church's uh, summer missions trip overseas because she realized she wouldn't be able to get back in. And so, um, you know, God has really worked some, some miracles in Liz's life, and she's been able to go on to college despite that situation. And and now she's been able to get temporary work authorization. So some of the policy questions affect this. That's the, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that hear, people hear about in the news. Um, but stories like Liz is, have really really opened my eyes to how complex this issue of immigration is, that it is an issue affecting a lot of people within local churches. 
it's not as simple as people just wanted to break the law. Um, it's usually much more complex than that. So we tell the story of, of four or five different families and how their lives have, been, have interacted with the U.S. immigration system. Let's move to this topic, Matt. Nation of Immigrants, a historical perspective on immigration to the United States. That's a big one. It is. You know, there's so much, uh, so much of our national story is really a story of immigration. Um, that title, Nation of Immigrants, is taken from a, a book written by John F. Kennedy uh, several decades ago. But if you think about it, most of us can trace our roots back to somewhere else, whether that was, you know, ancestors who came on the Mayflower or in a form of forced migration on a slave ship or in through Ellis Island 100, 150 years ago in that era. Uh, but I think we start that chapter really by reminding people of a command of God to the Israelites. God told the Israelites in the Book of the Law, look, you need to remember your own history as foreigners in the land of Egypt where you were not treated well, where you were mistreated by, by Pharaoh, so that you will know how to treat the, the foreigners who come into your land later on. And you, you basically, God tells us, like, you need to remember your story, not forget it, so that you can be better than that. So we really just wanted to trace through the history of immigration to the United States. And there's high points and low points there. There's um, you know, a lot of bravery and courage and a lot of welcoming of those who arrived. And there also have been points in our history where a lot of Americans felt like there was just no space for further immigrants or that these new immigrants, whether they were the Germans in the 1750s or the Irish in the 1850s or the Chinese in the 1880s, uh, the Italians and, and Russian Jews and around the turn of the 20th century, whatever category we're looking at, there's been people who many other Americans or people already here thought they just can't fit in. They can't possibly integrate into our community. And so just tracing through that history and then at the same time tracing through how policies have changed. Because Frankly, the reasons immigrants come have not changed much. They're looking for economic opportunity. They're looking for freedom. Um, but the policies have changed really dramatically over time. And uh, particularly in the 1920s, we went from being in a country where the vast majority of people who would show up were allowed in to, after 1924, it became nearly impossible for most people in the world to lawfully come to the United States. And that's where we begin to see uh, a problem with illegal immigration. Um, and that, you know, we've ebbed and flowed. It's became less restrictive in the 1960s, and there's been different changes over time, but really tracing through that history, which I know for me was really illuminating because I didn't realize just how much our immigration policies have changed. Matthew Sorens is our guest. His book, Welcoming the Stranger. Matthew, I want you to talk to us about immigrating the legal way, our immigration system today. Yeah, you know, I think that... For me, and my ancestors came here from Holland in the 1850s, came to this country, I think my attitude has always been, you know, I, I don't have a problem with immigration. My ancestors were immigrants, but I just want people to come the legal way, the way that my ancestors did. Well, it turns out my ancestors did come here lawfully, and that's because in the 1850s when they came, as I said, there, there weren't federal restrictions on immigration. There was no illegal way to come at that point. But now, of course, there are, and, and I'm not arguing that that's not a appropriate. I think we need restrictions on who comes into the country. But I think most Americans, like me, just don't realize how that system works today. So very, uh, a very quick summary version, there's four ways you can immigrate legally to the country. If you have a close relative who files a petition for you, like a spouse or a sibling or parent or child, not cousins or grandparents, and sometimes those petitions take literally decades to complete, um, more than 20 years in some cases. Or the next option would be having an employer sponsor. But the vast majority of employer-sponsored immigrant visas are designated specifically for those who are considered highly skilled. So if you've got a master's degree and a company in the United States wants to hire you, it might be possible. If you're coming to do what would be considered low-wage labor in agriculture or the hospitality industry, there is very, very slim chances of getting an immigrant visa through the employer sponsorship program. The third possibility would be if you win something called the diversity visa lottery, which is an online lottery. Odds of winning last year were about somewhere in the area of 1 in 300, so not very good. Um, and you can't enter that lottery if you're from Mexico or from India, China, South Korea, El Salvador, the Philippines, any of the countries that already send the most immigrants to the United States. And then the last possibility would be refugee status. So if you can prove to the U.S. government that you have a well-founded fear of persecution, not of poverty or you know, natural disaster, but of persecution in your country of origin because of particular factors, your race, religion, political opinion, or a few others, uh, the U.S. will select a very small percentage of those people. This year, it'll be about 
0.08% of the world's refugees who will be invited to come to the United States. Um, so those are the four basic categories for lawful migration. And I think it's important to understand that a lot of people who would like to come don't fit into any one of those categories. And where it sets up a dilemma nationally is if they manage to get to the United States other than lawfully, whether crossing the border illegally or overstaying a temporary visa that they might qualify for, they very often fit into our economy very quickly. My guest is Matt Sorens with uh, Roots in Aurora, Illinois. More with Matt right after this. On the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, it's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando, where faith comes by hearing. Matthew Sorens is with us from Aurora, Illinois. We're talking about his book, Welcoming the Stranger. Matt, tell us about thinking biblically about immigration. That's your next topic. Yeah, uh, you know, that's really the heart of the book for us. And uh, we did a survey with uh, LifeWay Research a few years back and asked people who call themselves evangelical Christians what is most informing their views on this topic of immigration. And only 12% of self-described evangelical Christians said that the Bible was the most important influence on their thinking. That was troubling to me. In fact, the Bible, the local church, and the views of national Christian leaders combined were mentioned less often than media. Uh, there is, of course, some Christian media out there giving a biblical perspective, but most media, that's not the perspective people are going to get. So we really wanted to dive into what the Bible says. And there's so much, we, we don't have time to talk about everything in a short time, but one thing is that there's 92 references in the Old Testament to the Hebrew word for an immigrant, the, the Hebrew word ger. Um, very often that, that category of person, the foreigner, the resident alien, the sojourner, depending upon your translation into English, is mentioned alongside the orphan and the widow as people whom God loves and whom he then commands his people to love. And then in the New Testament, we have this idea of hospitality, which in the Greek of the New Testament is literally the love of strangers, the word philoxenia, um, which is a little bit harder than I think the way we sometimes think of hospitality, which is having your friends over for lunch. Well, real hospitality biblically is, is goes beyond that. It's having strangers into your home. It's um, welcoming them in. And so, uh, and then we also look in this chapter at, well, what about the fact that some people didn't follow the law? Uh, Romans chapter 13 says that everyone should be subject to the governing authorities. How do we bring together a respect for the rule of law that the Bible commands of us, and at the same time, this attitude of love and welcome for those who are vulnerable foreigners, which the Bible also commands? So we try to bring those pieces together, and we really believe it is possible to reconcile those different biblical principles. Now, Matt, let's move to... The next topic, it's called Concerns About Immigration. Fill us in, please. Yeah, you know, as I speak in churches on a fairly regular basis, I find that I'll usually talk mostly about the Bible, and very few of the questions when we'll get to a Q&A time are about the Bible. Because, again, that's not the framework we've really thought about this issue from. The questions tend to be about, well, why aren't those people learning English, or what about crime rates, or terrorism, or um, the effect on the economy, or a number of other concerns. So we really dive into this chapter into what are the key concerns, some of them very legitimate, um, some of them maybe less legitimate based on, on some misconceptions. Um, but I would take just a, one misconception that I've, I find we hear a lot right now relates specifically to refugees, um, which is this category of, of immigrants who are invited by the United States State Department to come to the U.S. because they have a well-founded fear of persecution that they've had to flee in their homeland. And a lot of people are concerned about, well, how do we know that those people are actually fleeing persecution or terrorism and not the, the perpetrators of terrorism or, or other, you know, other people seeking to do harm to the United States? And so one thing we, we do in that chapter is explain the vetting process for refugees, which is a process that, first of all, is only offered to less than a tenth of one percent right now of the world's refugees. It's extremely selective. And it involves a process that's anywhere between 18 months and three years of thorough vetting, uh, including in-person interviews with trained officers of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and the reality is that process has been very effective. Since 1980, when the Refugee Act was signed into law, there's been more than 3 million refugees admitted into the United States, and not a single one of them has ever taken an American life in a terrorist attack. Um, obviously, we've had terrorism in the United States, but it hasn't been at the hands of people who came through that, that vetting process for refugees which is actually more thorough than, um, than that of any other category of visitor or immigrant to the United States. And, and those stats, at least since 1980, if you go back further, you might find something. But for many years, we've had a very successful process of making sure the U.S. is bringing in the right people and not bringing in the wrong people. 
Um, so that, that's one of the key misconceptions, as many others, but um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of confusion on this topic. We're trying to provide some facts and analysis. Matt, tell us about the value of immigration to the United States. Yeah, you know, after looking at some of the, the potential liabilities of immigration, we also want to be really clear that there are a lot of contributions that immigrants make. And particularly, that's true economically. So um, I think a lot of people's concerns are around, well, you know, we're a generous country, but can we afford to welcome immigrants in, as we've done, you know, throughout our history? And while a lot of Americans think, well, we can't afford this, we can't afford to have more people come here, most economists, uh, the vast majority of economists, actually think that immigrants are helping the U.S. economically. Uh, They're contributing in a number of ways, for one, as consumers. Immigrants are about 14% of the U.S. population, a higher percentage probably there in the central Florida area, and they are, you know, they're buying things. They're buying houses and food and smartphones and cars and paying rent, and all of that, all of that feeds back into the local economy and ultimately into the national economy. So they're, they're working, yes. In fact, immigrants have all sorts of higher labor participation rates than native-born U.S. citizens, but they're also adding to the total number of jobs by their consumption in the economy. And then they're also paying taxes, which, again, I think that's true even of those who are not in the country legally. Um, They're paying sales taxes, they're paying property taxes directly or indirectly. And about half of those who are here unlawfully are having payroll taxes taken from their paychecks. And I think that surprises people, but it speaks to kind of the duplicity of our federal government, which is happy to receive people's uh, income tax and Social Security deductions. They know that that number doesn't match the... The name on the card doesn't match the number because uh, people are using false social security cards in many cases. But our government still takes the money, sends it on to retirees uh, who paid into the system in years past. Uh, but those people working with false documents are not eligible for any sort of a benefit. They can't, when they retire, go collect a social security check. So there's, there's actually a lot of contributions that are beyond what most Americans probably realize. Now, Matthew, let's um, get to this topic. The politics and policies of immigration reform. Yeah, as I said, this was our second edition of this book, so this was the chapter that basically had to be entirely rewritten, because mm-hmm. a lot has changed in the last 10 years. Um, uh, 10 years ago, it was President Bush pushing an immigration reform bill, um, and, um, uh, and and now it's obviously we're pretty far from an immigration reform bill going anywhere in Congress, I think it's fair to say. But we wanted to analyze why that's true, why this issue has become so polarized, um, and also propose some, some ways forward. So fundamentally, what we've said for many years now at World Relief, and as have a number of other evangelical leaders, um, there's something we call the Evangelical Immigration Table that we're a part of, is we've basically said it ought to be harder to immigrate illegally. Um, we think it's appropriate for our country to have secure borders um, and to make sure that those who come in on a temporary visa are going back when they're supposed to. But at the same time, we think it should be easier to immigrate legally, um, not without limit. We're not calling for a return to a open borders system, but that that when we have economic needs in our country, we have labor needs, and when there are families that have been waiting for many years to be reunited, uh, when there are individuals who fled persecution who need a safe place to be, that the United States should take at least as many as are in our own ne- economic interest. The reality is currently we we legally take far fewer than our labor market requires, and then we end up looking the other way as people overstay visas or come across the border illegally. And then that leads into the third piece of that, of a comprehensive reform that we've called for that would say for those who are here illegally, and most of them at this point have been here more than 10 years, we think there ought to be a process where people could come forward, could pay a fine, which is why we're not, we're not saying amnesty that says you broke the law, it's forgiven and forgotten. We're saying there ought to be a process that honors the law, that says the law is important, um, but at the same time, it's compassionate. And, of course, if people have committed serious crimes, they, they would be deported. But for the vast majority of roughly 11 million people who've been here a long time, who've been working, paying taxes, staying out of the out of criminal trouble, they'd be able to pay a fine and then get on a, a path towards earning permanent legal status over a number of years. Uh, we think that both honors the law and also is compassionate and, and, frankly, realistic for the needs of our economy and for keeping families together. Matt, I want you to explain uh, the ninth uh, topic, the church and immigration today. Uh, What are you writing there? Yeah, you know, I think that for a lot of Americans, we think of this as an issue happening out there in society. Uh, But 
for those of us who are Christians, this is actually an in-house issue. Because if you look at, at statistics, the church in the United States is growing most quickly in immigrant communities, among immigrants and their children. And frankly, sometimes it's the only growth that most Christian traditions are experiencing in the United States. Um, and that's not, you know, we're not, it's not a good thing that certain other categories of American citizens are going to church less, but we certainly want to celebrate that immigrants are contributing to the vibrancy of the church. But if we're going to celebrate that, and I think First Corinthians 12 would have us to celebrate that, to rejoice with those who rejoice, we also need to be willing to mourn with those who mourn and with those who are suffering. And often, I think, in the U.S. church, uh, we're not aware of the struggles that are happening in immigrant congregations or because many of us aren't in those congregations. You know, they're meeting in separate spaces or meeting in the, in the same spaces, but on a Sunday afternoon um, in a rented space from another church. But those brothers and sisters are just as much the body of Christ as any, any other of us. So our view is that this issue is actually an opportunity for the church, an opportunity to make disciples of all nations right in our own communities, an opportunity to live out Jesus' great commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. But it also means we need to wrestle with the complicated dynamics of, of immigration policy and how those policies are impacting people who are integral parts of the body of Christ in, in North America. Matt, it's time now to discuss a Christian response to the immigration dilemma. Uh, what are you teaching? Yeah, you know, we really don't want this book to just be information. Uh, we want it to be practical. So we close with looking at how can we actually apply uh, what the Bible says about how to treat our immigrant neighbors. So some of that would be looking for opportunities to serve. Um, there's a lot of needs in immigrant communities, and, and we do that at World Relief um, in a number of locations around the country, um, working with local churches. Um, and then there's many other local churches that are, you know, have developed their own ministries, whether those are English classes or uh, with the proper authorization legal services. Um, youth program. So we think it's really an important opportunity to meet very tangible needs in immigrant communities, and at the same time to facilitate relationships between those who are newly arrived and, and people like me who were born in this country have been here for a long time. Uh, secondly, we really want to look at how do we advocate for what we think are just and compassionate policies. Um, our elected officials are ultimately working for us. They want to represent the views of their constituents, and when they hear, you know, from people in local churches or, you know, in, who are part of their community, that they want a solution on immigration. Many of them really want to do that, but they want to know that there's support from the people they're called to represent. Um, and then the last thing I, I would say there is also looking beyond just the immediate impact of immigration to looking at the countries that immigrants come from. Um, because ultimately, immigration is usually a difficult choice by people who feel they have no choice but to leave their homeland, and whether that's for economic reasons or because of violence or persecution. And while I am really passionate about seeing the church in particular respond with compassion and hospitality to those who arrive, I also think we need to take a step back and look at how can we come alongside churches in other parts of the world to address the root causes of immigration. Uh, and that's something we do at World Relief uh, by bringing churches in the United States to partner alongside of churches in, in Africa, in uh, in Haiti and Southeast Asia and various other parts of the world where many immigrants come from and looking at some of those root causes. So there's, I mean, there's more, but those are a handful of the ways that we really suggest some practical ways to get involved in addressing the situation. Matthew, what do you want uh, our listeners to take from our chat and from your book? You know, I think the most important thing I would challenge people, you know, I, I'm sure you have a whole diverse group of people listening, but many of them would call themselves Christians. And I would just really challenge people that instead of thinking of this issue first and foremost as a political issue and going to our preferred cable television channel to decide what to think, um, to really step back and say, what does the Bible say that might inform how I think about this? And that doesn't mean that all Christians have to agree on the public policy questions or on all the details, but I hope that we can all agree, if we're followers of Jesus, that our foundation needs to be in what does the Bible say, and to make sure we're versed in that, because often that's not a perspective we've heard. Uh, for most of us in the past. Can you tell us uh, a little more about World Relief? Yeah, I'd love to. So World Relief was started in the 1940s as the War Relief Commission out of a church in Boston to respond to a situation of mass displacement after World War II, as many refugees had been forced to flee all across Europe. 
And from there, we um, move from not just addressing the war in Europe, but uh, situations of poverty and conflict all over the world. And so we became World Relief. But really, since our founding, our mission has been focused on empowering the local church in various parts of the world and to to serve the most vulnerable in that community. And we continue to do that in um, countries all over the world and also here in the United States in about 20 communities where we partner with the U.S. State Department to help refugees resettle as they first arrive in the country, um, to provide legal services and educational support for newly arrived immigrants of, of all kinds. And again, our our mission is really to not just do that on behalf of the church, but to empower people within local churches to be a part of welcoming immigrants and helping them to integrate into local communities. Matthew Sorens has been our guest. We've got more right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Matthew Sorens, our guest in that first segment, uh, his book, Welcoming the Stranger. Ariva Martin is in Los Angeles. She's the co-host of the award-winning show, The Doctors, CNN legal analyst. Uh, Her book is out. It's called Make It Rain, How to Use the Media to Revolutionize Your Business and Brand. Uh, Ariva, thank you. Welcome. How are you? I'm fantastic, Pat. Thanks so much for having me. Why is it important to use the media to revolutionize your business and brand? Well, Pat, as you know, over the last decade or so, the world has changed dramatically in a lot of ways, some good, some not so great. But one of the biggest changes has been in the way we consume information and the way we use media. Uh, You can remember, without uh, either of us talking about our ages, that there used to be four television networks, and every piece of information we got, primarily we got from those four networks. Today, there are thousands, not tens of thousands, of different media channels where we get information, uh, including, you know, online streaming sites that provide information 24-7. So if you have a business or a brand and you want to connect with consumers or clients, uh, what better way than media? And when I say media, I mean this expansive new media, not just those four networks, but down into five parts. The first part is called Rainmaking. Make your own luck. Lock onto your brand. Can you fill us in on that, Ariva? Yeah. The first part of the book is to really lay, again, the foundation for uh, how you're going to present yourself to the media. You know, who are you? What do you want to be known for? What are people going to find, you know, when they connect with you? Uh, so before you even get to, you know, putting your brand out through these various media channels, you've got to ask yourself, what is my brand? You know, am I uh, the expert baker of cupcakes? And do I want people to think of me whenever they think of wanting to buy the best baked goods uh, and particularly the best cupcakes? You know, what, what is it that you want to be known for? So I take people through a series of exercises to help them figure out what their brand is. And again, uh, your brand isn't just what you do. So uh, in my day job, I'm a lawyer. So my brand, you know, to say your brand is a lawyer doesn't tell people very much about you uh, because there are hundreds of thousands of lawyers in this country. Or if you're a medical doctor or if you're uh, a chiropractor, what you do in terms of your profession can be a part of your brand and I would say should be a part of your brand. But it's not going to be you know, that which people typically uh, identify, you know, when they think of you. you know, your brand is really bigger than that. It's what you do, but it's also how you make people feel. Because what we've learned about media, particularly this new brand of media, social media in particular, it's about engagement. It's about connecting with people. And people connect with people that make them feel good. Uh, so the first part of the book is really that, just helping you identify what your brand is. Now, I want you to talk to us about part two, 
what you need first. Find your people, hone your pitch, become a trusted source. Uh, what does that all mean, Areva? Yeah, finding your people. Uh, you know, last day there's hundreds of million, I don't know, 300 million people in the U.S. alone. Uh, who are the people of that 300 million that you want to connect with? Uh, that is so critical because that's going to dictate to you what media sources you want to target. Uh, you know, are you, again, a, a local restaurant owner in Central Florida and your, job, your, your goal is to cause people to come to your local restaurant? If so, when you think about using the media, you're probably going to look for local newspapers, local outlets, those outlets that connect with people in your local market. It uh, doesn't do you a whole lot of good to be on television in the L.A. market if you have a restaurant in Central Florida. Uh, I may see your food. I may get excited about it. I may want to buy it. But, you know, there's an obstacle. and It's called thousands of miles. You know, I, I can't jump in my car and get to your local restaurant if I'm in Los Angeles and you're in Central Florida. So, you know, identifying who you want to connect with is really key. Uh, a key component once you've identified what your brand is. Now, well, we move to part three. Deploy it. Mm-hmm. Go for media channels, big and small. Jump on breaking news stories. Uh, explain all that. Yeah, that, that's con- like I, I talked about, you know, who are your people? What is going to be the most effective way to you, for you to connect with those people? I go back to my Central Florida restaurant example. Again, you may get a, a chance to go on Good Morning America or the Today Show. Wonderful opportunities, and I, I definitely would say don't ever pass those opportunities up. But again, the question is, you know, is going smaller better for what you're trying to accomplish? So you've got to know your goals and work backwards from those goals. So if your goal is to get 50 more people into your restaurant every day, you've got to figure out who are the most likely 50 people that can walk into that restaurant and how do you target those people? Well, you know, what's the media channel that allows you to connect with those people? Now, if you have a national brand or a national product or a national service, clearly, you know, going national, having a national presence, that presence on national shows, or writing for national publications is going to be more advantageous for you. But I talk about in that section of the book identifying what your end game is, what you know, what your end result is. I'll give you a great example. You know, recently in the press has been this whole Nike ad uh, featuring Colin Kaepernick, and some folks said, "Oh my God, that's horrible!" This guy, you know, has been uh, disrespecting the, the flag, and he hasn't been standing for the national anthem. Why would they want to make him the face of a campaign? Well, the reality is Nike's core demographic are millennials 18 to 24 years old. They buy most of the Nike products. Most of those individuals that Nike targets live in urban communities. Their customer base, their key demographic, wants them to take issues on social and political uh, issues of the day. So although they may piss off some older uh, customers, but their core demographic, where those ads are going to play, in those markets where those ads will be visible, they're going to resonate with their core demographic. So likewise, in the book, I talk about figuring that out. Who are the people that you're trying to connect with? Because that's uh, you want to be where those people are. You want to have your messages where those people are uh, because those are the people that matter to you. We're talking with Ariva Martin and the topic... Well, make it rain, but the subtitle explains it all about how to deal and revolutionize your business and your brand. Um, by the way, when I was growing up, uh, we never heard the word brand, Ariva. Uh, now we hear it all the time. What's the story there? Yes, brands used to be big companies. Coca-Cola was a brand. Right. Uh was a brand, like Clorox, those were brands, only these mega companies that produced these products that became household names were thought of as brands. So Kleenex makes uh, a tissue that we use to, you know, blow our noses, but tissue became synonymous with Kleenex. So uh, over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, there's been a shift away 
from or an expansion, I should say, shift away because there's still these big corporate brands. But the concept of branding has expanded. So now people are brands. Uh, anybody can be a brand, and, and you don't have to have a, a multi-billion-dollar, multi-million-dollar marketing budget. Uh, the days of you know you having to take out a hundred thousand-dollar ad in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journey Journal are gone. Uh, literally, in the luxury of your own home, you can go on to social media. You can create a profile on a social media platform. Uh, you can load up video. You can load up content that you've developed. You can load up images that, that you've created, and you become a brand. You know, you uh, identify for folks who, you know, you want to be identified with, uh, whether it's a beauty brand, uh, you know, whether it's a sports brand. Uh, you get to define who you are. Uh, and it's almost free. Uh, you know, it's not completely free, but in some cases it, it can be free. And we, in the book I give examples of people who become Instagram famous. Uh, they've got, you know, major endorsement deals for products uh, simply because they've grown their followers on Instagram to half million, a million, two million, three million followers. Uh, and not only do they have the followers, they have a kind of engagement where they can move people to action. And I talk about that in the book. You can have a lot of followers, but not a lot of influence. And, and the name of the game, when, when you are seeking endorsement deals and, and you're seeking to promote products or services, it's about your ability to move people to action. So uh, it may not be the person with the largest amount of followers, but it could be, it's usually the person that has the most engagement. They have engaged followers, again, people that will listen to them and people that will take action. Ariva Martin is with us. Uh, we're talking about her book, Make It Rain. Uh, we've covered part one, Ariva, rainmaking. Part two, what you need first. We've talked about part three, deploy it. Now, uh, share with us about part five, part four, excuse me, amplify it, you tell us. Forget the old social media, engage or fail. Yeah, Pat, that, that's the concept I was just alluding to in terms of engagement. Uh, the days of billboard advertising are, are pretty much gone. Mm. Uh, social media is a whole different form of engagement. Uh, people don't want you standing there with a big billboard saying, look at me. They want to engage with you. They want to have conversations with you. They want to know what you think. They want to know your opinion about what's happening in the world. Uh, they want to get to know you. They want to know more than just, you know, the, the glossy uh, Photoshop picture that you may post. They want to know about your kids, your family, your likes, your dislikes, your hobbies. Uh, and through social media, you're, you're afforded an opportunity to do that. And you get to decide, you know, how much information you want to share. Obviously, you don't have to give away all of your personal and, you know, most, uh, you know, closely hold, held information. But people do want to have uh, some kind of two-way exchange with you. Uh, you know, they, they want to be able to know that when, when something breaks, you know, whether it's some kind of breaking news on, uh, what's happening in politics, what's happening in the world of sports, what's happening in the economy. They want to be able to go to your page, your social feed, and, and see what is this, this person that I trust, that I follow, what do they have to say about this? What should I think about this? What do I make uh, of what's happening in the world? You know, there's a lot of chatter. There's, because we have so many media channels, there's, there's so much information that people are provided with. But what the studies have shown is that even though there's all of this, this noise, in some ways, you know, people typically will identify with a, a small group of trusted advisors, and they'll go to those trusted advisors uh, to help them understand what's happening in the world around them. My guest, Ariva Martin from Los Angeles, co-host of the Emmy Award-winning show, The Doctors, and her book, Make Pat, It... Pat, I just want to tell you that although I, I was uh, definitely co-hosting The Doctors for the last couple of years, I have a new show uh, by the creators of The Doctors, Stage 29. It's Dr. Phil and his son, Jay McGraw. Uh, it premieres actually on Monday, September 10th, 
And it's called Face the Truth. It's a panel show of five dynamic women uh, led by uh, actress Vivica Fox. Uh, there's a panel of us who will be helping real people with real issues. It's a kind of an impromptu, unscripted uh, show where we'll be uh, dealing with a range of, of, of issues from relationship issues to uh, family feuds to people in crisis. And it's going to be, a, I think, a, a show that really moves the needle with a, a com- combination of the view meets Dr. Phil. Uh, but really helping people and giving them lots of, of resources to help them get their lives back on track. That's terrific, Ariba. Thanks for sharing that with us. We need to take a break. Then when we come back, we're going to talk about part five of your book, Monetize It, Wield Your Connections and Watch It Rain. Uh, I'm Pat Williams. This is the Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Ariva Martin is with us uh, from Los Angeles. Uh, we've been talking about her new book called Make It Rain, How to Use the Media to Revolutionize Your Business and Brand. As advertised, Ariva, monetize it. That's the fifth part of your book. Explain that. What does that mean? That means taking your brand and using it to create revenue. Uh, I gave the example of some Instagram. Instagram influencers, uh, but you could, the YouTube influencers, the social media influencers, and, and various different platforms who've been able to grow their uh, followers uh, and prove to businesses and other uh, product brands that you know, that they are someone that a brand should be associated with. So you see lots of. Instagram influencers who now are promoting uh, products on their social media feeds, and they're getting paid to do that. So, again, gone are the days where endorsement deals were reserved just to uh, elite athletes and A-list celebrities. Uh, You can find, you know, people on various social media channels. You may not have ever heard of them. I may not have ever heard of them, but they may have a million people. Uh, that follow them, and they may uh, you know, promote a beauty product, a hair care product, a uh, product to be used in, in you know, home cleaning supplies. All kinds of products now are being uh, promoted, not just by athletes and English celebrities, but by brands that have established this following. Tell me how the media works behind the scenes, Ariva. Yeah, so uh, I, I talk a lot about behind the scenes and, and the importance of understanding the different media channels. Uh, you know, if you're, again, someone who has a, a restaurant in Central Florida and you're trying to grow your customer base, you know, it may not be the best thing for you to be on one of the cable networks that's dedicated to politics. You know, again, if your restaurant customers are highly political, maybe that would make sense. But you know, if you have a, a, a trendy restaurant that caters to millennials, uh, you probably want to figure out you know, what's the local channel in Central Florida that has a really high concentration of, of young viewers or young listeners. And who are the people working in those media outlets? You know, how are they developing their shows? What kinds of shows, what kinds of stories are they looking for? You know, can I pitch them a, a story about, you know, that the new trend in Pizza Crush is a pizza crust is, is cauliflower and how I'm using cauliflower uh, to, you know, make my pizzas and how millennials are flocking into my restaurant because they want an alternative to the flour because they're, they're, they're gluten-free or they're looking for healthier food items. That could be a really interesting story to a local food channel or a local news channel that wants to do a segment on you know how healthy uh, alternatives are becoming more prevalent in local restaurants. So you've got to get to know the people that are you know, making the decisions on stories in your media channel <laughs> and you know, how do you pitch stories to them? What stories are they interested in? You know, what what are their 
are gravitating to and how can you jump into uh, some of those uh, stories? How can you produce content? What I talk a lot about is, is how much content is needed. Because we have so many media channels, uh, there's this insatiable need for content. And content is everything from images that you create, uh, videos that you create, articles that you write, even social media posts are a form of content. So you've got to figure out, you know, what are the media channels that you're targeting, what's the kind of content that they're looking for, and how do you create that content uh, that matches what their needs and desires are. Arif, I probably should have asked you this question at the beginning of our chat. Uh, the title of your book, Make It Rain, means what? Growing your power in your influence, Pat. Rain, rain is abundant. So I use the word rain to be synonymous with abundance. So when you make it rain, you're, you're growing your abundance. You're, whether it's growing more followers on your social media platform, whether it's, it's growing your influence, if, if you're becoming a, a nationally or local, uh, locally recognized uh, expert in a particular area, you're, you're growing your influence. If you're the go-to person on storms in Central Florida and, and, and safety uh, during storms, uh, you're making it rain because you're growing your influence. Uh, if, if you're creating more customers for your business, more clients for your business, all of that is, is a form of, of abundance. And when I think about making it rain, that is exactly what you are doing. Uh, you have a set goal. You're working towards that goal. You're recognizing that every step that you take along the way is, is building towards that goal, and all of those steps matter. Uh, and and you're, you're hopefully enjoying the ride. You're sitting back. You're watching your, your assets, your abundance grow. Ariva, I want you to talk for a minute uh, to people listening who are running or just starting up a small business. They're excited. Uh, they're eager to get going here. But uh, what does Ariva tell them? Great. I-, I tell them congratulations. You've taken the first, you know, crucial step, which is to decide the decision to own your own business. I've been an entrepreneur. I call myself a serial entrepreneur. I've been one since uh, my first year out of law school. Uh, there's nothing more rewarding than being your own boss. But with being your own boss comes a tremendous amount of responsibility. Uh, people sometimes uh, have the misconception that when you work for yourself, you work less. Uh, sorry to you know, burst the bubble, but when you work for yourself, you work a lot harder. But, but the rewards that you see are beyond anything you can ever imagine. Uh, I tell them to understand that in today's society, your brand plan is as important as your business plan, and you have to have both to be successful as a small business owner. Uh, I wrote an article about your brand plan for entrepreneur.com magazine. Uh, I would recommend to small business owners to look for that article. You can go to my website at readermind.com and find it. Go to entrepreneur.com and, and look up my name, Ariva Martin, uh, under your brand plan. It's more important than your business plan. But it's a, it's a really uh, good article for small business owners because it talks about this whole concept of branding, how you create a brand, how you grow your brand, how you use the brand to attract more customers and clients to your business. Uh, so I, I would tell small business owners two things, business plan, brand plan very key to uh, owning and operating a successful small business. What's next for you, Ariva? Do you have another book, well, uh, an- another book uh, in your pipeline? Not another book right away. I'm continuing to tour with this book. I'm doing speaking events all over the country, uh, uh, talking about making rain, talking about growing your power and your influence, talking about finding your voice. And amplifying your voice. Like I said, I'll be starting a new talk show uh, in September, called Face the Truth. It'll be on CBS stations all over the country. Uh, and I'll continue to uh, bring my form of no holds bar advocacy uh, to uh, different groups, 
me on, on CNN at night, you know, talking about the breaking news and political news of the day, or it's, it's me talking to business owners and uh, women uh, who are, you know, becoming uh, increasingly leaders in the field of, of business and, and science and technology. Uh, so I just look forward to connecting with the business groups and women's groups and, and uh, you know, I, I love talking with people. I love sharing what I've learned as a business owner, uh, as a media personality, as a spokesperson, uh, and, and as a commentator. So what's next for me, uh, Pat, is just to continue you know, talking about uh, the, the topics that, that make me, uh, that motivate me and inspire me, which are really you know, the topics of, of advocacy and of business ownership and, and leadership. Uh, those are some of the things that, that ignite my passion. So uh, I'm just looking forward to continuing to connect with people. I hope people, you know, if, if you pick up Naked Rain, you can pick it up on, uh, you know, an audible copy. You can go to Amazon.com. You can go to Barnes & Noble. I encourage people to, you know, leave me a review on Amazon. Tell me what you think about the book. Connect with me on my website, AvivaMart.com. Connect with me on social media, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I love to engage with folks who are beginning in their journey of entrepreneurship as well as those people established business people. Uh, we can all learn so much from each other. Arriva Martin has been our guest. We've got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Arriva, you did it. You did it. That was a great half hour. Thank you, Pat. I enjoyed speaking with you. And definitely uh, send me an email once the, the show is going to go up. I'd love to you know, post it on social media and uh, you know, Good. make Se- sure we get maximum exposure for it. Thank you, babe. September 29th is the date. I'll put it on it's, my phone. It's going to air September 29th, 94.9 FM, AM 950 in Orlando. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.